Hi, this is Father Dominic Legg, director of the Thomistic Institute. Thanks for tuning in to today's lecture. Every talk on this podcast was originally delivered at an in-person event for college students, perhaps at one of our campus chapters or at a Thomistic Institute retreat or conference. Students today are hungry for the truth, and you know how important it is for them to find it. If this podcast has impacted you, that's because someone gave a donation to make these talks possible. So I'm wondering, would you do the same for someone else this December? Even a gift of $10 or $20 has a big impact. Your gift will bring the truth to college students and to many others in 2023 if you give before December 31st. And you can make a tax-deductible donation at www.tomisticinstitute.org donate. That's www.tomisticinstitute.org donate. Thank you for your generosity. And may God bless you this Advent and Christmas season. Uh, the title of this talk, I think, was a, um, inadvertently a collaborative venture between myself and the Thomistic Institute board, or maybe I typed too quickly. Uh, probably it would be better for me to have advertised this as evolution from a Catholic astronomer's perspective. Uh, so I'm neither a biologist, nor a theologian, nor an anthropologist. And many decades ago, uh, a very uh, distinguished professor here at Rochester, Hugh Van Horn, an astronomer who uh, became my senior thesis advisor, uh, cautioned me that astronomers love to think that they're anthropologists, um, as well as uh, rocket engineers. Uh, so. Um, I've fallen into that trap many times. Nonetheless, I put this talk together for the Thomistic Institute because I find that um, perhaps outside of the, the student environment, but even inside of the student environment, uh, among Catholics, there's a concern that somehow evolution and Catholicism are incompatible with each other. Uh, and. Um, particularly, I think, in the outside um, non-scientific world. So if this talk is going to be a benefit, it might be uh, for those of you who are Catholic, um, who have relatives uh, or friends who think that these are incompatible, or you have uh, student colleagues who are majoring in science who uh, see an incompatibility. Perhaps this will uh, allow you to more accurately or perhaps uh, with more persuasiveness, be able to argue otherwise. Uh, I also am very interested in the lives of scientists who uh, were Catholic. Uh, in fact, on the Society of Catholic Scientists website, you see this growing uh, list of biographies of Catholic scientists. And uh, it's often a surprise to uh, Catholics and others uh, that uh, some famous scientists actually were Catholic. Uh, Georges Lemaitre is an example of that very famous cosmologist who is also a Catholic priest. So at the end of this talk, I want to tell a little historical tale about Charles Darwin, who is the father of uh, the concept of natural selection, uh, the mechanism of evolution that we understand today, uh, and his relationship to models of uh, inheritance, how traits are actually inherited. Um, that, in fact, uh, will turn out to uh, involve uh, Gregor Mendel, who is an Augustinian monk, Catholic monk, 
we all know as being the um, author of the laws of heredity. But what perhaps is not quite so well known is that he also had a theory of inheritance that was um, much, much closer to what is understood today than Darwin's theory. And yet Darwin uh, was not aware of Mendel's work uh, for reasons that we don't quite understand. But I want to talk about some of the implications of that at the, toward the end of the talk. So the main points of my talk are going to be as follows. Uh, Darwinian evolution, uh, I'll talk about the basic concept of it, is a theory of biological evolution in which um, all species arise and develop through the natural selection of inherited variations. Most of these are small, but they're not always small. And for microorganisms, they're not small, but we're going to talk mostly about um, large multicellular organisms. And these variations increase the individual's ability to compete, survive, and reproduce. Um, Darwinian evolution is so well demonstrated that its validity is essentially inarguable for terrestrial life, the only life we know um, anywhere. There might be life elsewhere, um, but the only life we know is, is life on Earth. So for that reason, um, it's called a theory rather than a hypothesis. Uh, and I'll talk about what that means in a, a couple of slides. Um, the teaching of the Catholic Church accepts evolution as the mechanism for the material development of species, including humans. In terms of what makes humans special uh, from um, a spiritual point of view is not covered by science. Uh, and um, it is something that is beyond the realm of science. We can talk about it during the discussion. So, you know, be very clear that we're talking about the material development of everything because science is about understanding mechanisms in uh, the material universe, the universe that we can see and perceive and experience. Um, I'm also going to briefly talk about much of what underpins evolution is consistent with Thomistic theology. Now, bear in mind that St. Thomas lived many centuries before experimental science really got going. And although he did have a perspective on the natural world from Aristotle, um, many of the concepts that would go into evolution, even a couple of centuries before Darwin, were just not available to uh, Aquinas. Uh, and then I'll talk about this issue of Mendel and Darwin and their missed opportunity for interacting with each other. Okay. So um, biological evolution uh, is the process of the development through time of new forms derived from earlier forms. Uh, Darwinian evolution, uh, as I said, is a theory of biological evolution in which species arise and develop through a process of natural selection in which variations are introduced randomly and um, some of those variations allow some individuals to be able to reproduce more successfully than others. Now, the term theory is used almost in the same sense that general relativity is a theory of gravity. A theory, in this sense, I'm taking this from Ken Miller's book, is an explanation for a natural phenomenon widely accepted among the scientific community and supported by data. So it's different from laws. Um, a law is something that is a prescription that comes from 
experiments that you can replicate over and over again. Um, laws can actually only be applicable uh, in uh, limited uh, conditions. For example, Newton's law of gravity is only applicable in uh, under certain conditions. It's, vi it's is violated in uh, conditions of, of large accelerations, um, high masses, uh, high velocities. Um, so then different theories of gravity uh, take over. Um, the laws of um, heredity, which uh, Mendel put together, are just simply um, a prescription for what happens when you cross organisms of the same species. Uh, but they don't, it's not the insight into what the mechanisms are behind those laws. The insight into those mechanisms are what you would call the theory, if that's really well established. If it's not, it could be a hypothesis instead. Um, so in this sense, Darwinian evolution is not a hypothesis. It's a theory of biological evolution that from an observational and mechanistic point of view, the mechanisms behind it is very, very well established. So there are really two elements that go into Darwinian evolution. One is natural selection, the other is mutation. Um, natural selection comes from the physical environment in which an organism uh, interacts with other organisms and with the environment. And certain organisms uh, may be better suited to an environment than others. Uh, one thing that has been learned in the last <clears throat> 50 years of ecology is that um, environments are changing all the time. Uh, what one might regard as a particular environment that's in balance in some way is usually recovering from the last big catastrophe. So that's something that has come to be understood uh, more and more over time. And so organisms find themselves in changing environments and uh, have to adapt or not adapt as best they can. Um, that wouldn't change uh, or wouldn't create species if it weren't for the ability of uh, the information carrying molecules inside cells that determine the structure and uh, behavior of those cells if, the, if that were not mutable, if that were not changeable. But mutations do occur uh, in the information carrying molecules, DNA and RNA. Particularly in this case, DNA is important and that provides the raw material for, uh, in combination with interaction with the environment, the modification of, um, of species, the arising of new species, uh, as particular traits change, and those traits may, under certain conditions, be more suited to the particular environment that organisms find themselves in. And there's a lot of debate about whether most um, species arise quickly in small breeding groups in isolated environments or whether there is a change that occurs um, more gradually over time. And for the last 50 years, uh, the idea of rapid evolution or punctuated evolution, which came about uh, really by two biologists, Stephen Jay Gould and Niles Eldridge, that has been the dominant um, hypothesis for how Darwinian evolution actually works with large species, that population groups get isolated in a particular environment. There's a lot of inbreeding among a small number of individuals, and the environmental change associated with being isolated 
really stresses um, the adaptation in such a way that you quickly get a new species arising. And they studied uh, snails on, on an island uh, as, as an example of that. It's not really clear that's the way it always works. Um, and we're not going to get into that in detail, but um, new species do arise by this process. Okay, so I want to focus first on how mutations occur. So this is a very um, sketchy description of how the uh, genome, which is the information carrying material in every one of your cells, leads to um, the production of proteins. Proteins are the structure, the dominant structure of cells. Not everything is a protein. There's their membranes that are uh, made of fatty acids and so forth. But it's the dominant structure of life. And also proteins are the catalysts as enzymes that regulate um, most physical processes inside of cells. So what you see in the upper part of this diagram, and I'll try to use my big cursor here, is a sketch of DNA. So DNA is deoxyribonucleic acid. Uh, it is composed of a backbone of a sugar molecule called deoxyribose. And um, the sugars are tied together uh, by um, a, a bond called phosphate bond that involves uh, phosphorus and uh, hydrogen and oxygen. And then um, on each of these two helices that you see here, there are a series of essentially rungs of a ladder, which are small molecules called nucleic acid bases. And these nucleic acid bases are relatively simple molecules. In DNA, there are four different ones. They're labeled here by their, uh, the first letter of their chemical name, uh, guanine, cytosine, adenine, and thymine. Um, but we'll just think of them as T, A, G, and C. Now, these nucleic acid bases have a particular property, which is that they come in two slightly different forms. And those two different forms are represented, one by the, um, the T and the G, and the other by the A and the C. So that um, T and A tend preferentially to hydrogen bond with each other, where um, a hydrogen on one um, uh, forms a very weak bond with um, uh, the, um, the OH on the other. And then uh, G and C form a hydrogen bond with each other. So um, T and A uh, will connect and be stable. G and C will connect and be stable. But the same is not true for G and T or A and C. So if you put these two helices together, which is the normal stable form of DNA, you have these nucleic acid bases like the rungs of a ladder pointed to each other. Um, Water is on the outside of this. This is all in water. Um, and the inside of the molecule tends to be hydrophobic. It tends to exclude water. And so inside where these um, uh, bases are pointing to each other, uh, T will weakly bond with A and G will weakly bond with C. So that's the relationship between the two helices. Now, if you read across horizontally one of these helices, um, what you see is um, a series of um, letters, 
TTG and then coming down here for this part of this helix, GGC, and then AAC and AAT. Um, they're actually not organized in threes, but the way the artist has drawn this, it looks like that. It's just a string of these nucleic acid bases. But if you think of these as letters of the alphabet, then groups of threes are form the words of the alphabet. And those three-letter words, which are referred to as codons, um, do actually have a function. And the function they have is that the three-letter combinations will code for specific amino acids. Amino acids are another kind of small molecule. They're actually very common. They're made in nature outside of biology. They're found in meteorites, for example. Um, and the amino acids are the raw material for proteins. Amino acids aligned in a chain will produce a series of residual electric charges that force that chain to fold actually multiple times and produce three-dimensional structures that are called proteins. Proteins are composed of a chain of anywhere from tens to hundreds, sometimes thousands of amino acids. The amino acids have to all be what's called the same handedness. Amino acids, except for the simplest one, glycine, come in either a left or right-handed form. They're not spherically symmetric. Uh, the two different forms can't be superimposed on each other. They can in mirror image form, but not in um, direct form. And so life uses only left-handed amino acids. That's a detail for us here. Uh, it's important for understanding the origin of life. So um, a specific sequence of amino acids aligned along a chain will produce a particular protein of a given shape that will have a certain function. And the, there are enormous numbers of proteins, thousands upon thousands, <clears throat> that are used in life. And the instructions for um, producing those proteins are given by these three-letter codons that are the nucleic acid bases aligned along the helix and chopped into three pieces. So that's the genome. Now how to get that information to a place where the proteins can be assembled is the role of RNA, which is ribonucleic acid. And ribonucleic acid is like DNA except that the sugar in the backbone is ribose, not deoxyribose, and the chemical nature of that precludes having a double helix. So RNA is a single strand. The other difference, which is kind of a detail, is in place of the T, there's a U, that's uracil, a different nucleic acid base. But again, U likes to bond with A and G likes to bond with C. So um, the way in the cell that this works is that enzymes strip apart, like a zipper, the two helices of the DNA, exposing one of them. RNA is built up from that um, active, what's called the sense strand or the coding strand, and forms a mirror image in the complementary nucleic acid base. Instead of T, you get A. Instead of G, you get C so that the instructions are all preserved. That mRNA is mobile, and it can find its way then, it's actually moved by enzymes, to a place in the cell called the ribosome, and is laid out on the ribosome, somewhat like, almost like a ticker in a ticker tape. 
Um, everyone's seen a ticker tape. It came before computers and laptops. That dates me, I guess. Does anyone not know what a ticker tape is? Never mind. Okay. It's like something you read through a little machine. You stick one end in the machine and it's got punch holes in it and it, it reads along and it has instructions. So we don't, we have computers now. Okay. Um, so this RNA is laid out across the ribosome and the cell then has produced uh, a whole bunch of other uh, RNA segments called transfer RNA, which now I'm going to switch to a slightly um, more um, colorful diagram. Transfer RNA is um, a short strand of an RNA molecule, one end of which attaches to a specific amino acid. And these amino acids are labeled with uh, the um, abbreviations for their name, like lysine or phenylalanine or um, um, tryptophan, for example. Um, each one of these has a particular code in the RNA alphabet. Actually, if you have um, four letters in your alphabet and you can make three-letter words and the order matters, you can make 64 words. The, alpha, the, the language has 64, let, 64 words in it. There are only 22 amino acids that life actually uses. So there are actually several words or synonyms for a given amino acid. But again, that's a detail. So the transfer RNA attaches here <clears throat> and uh, to the messenger RNA. Uh, and so these can be aligned according to the lettering, again, using the complementary base pairing. On the other end is the specific amino acid that corresponds to that code, remember there are several codes for each amino acid, so that the transfer RNA is bringing in the uh, amino acids in a definite order that's determined by the messenger RNA, which was transcribed from the original DNA. And that then allows this chain of amino acids to be grown into what's called first a peptide, and then uh, a longer chain is a protein. So that is how it works, and the result is um, <clears throat> a set of instructions. Now, in the English language, you can play games like this, put together a three-letter word um, with these letters, and so I've done that. If you chop that up, you get one, 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 woe. That makes a lot of sense. Someone won something that was woeful. But mutations happen, mistakes happen in this uh, whole process. Um, radiation can break portions of the DNA, can penetrate into cells and damage part of the DNA. Uh, chemicals can do the same thing. But very often mutations are um, simply copying errors that occur. And the most common copying error is just to duplicate a base pair, to end up with the same letter twice. So for example, here in my English language case, this uh, sequence of letters chopped into threes as codons, one, 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 whoa, if I stick another N in here, I get one, one, non, ewo, and the other E's chopped off. Well, that doesn't make any sense at all. Most of the time, mutations just render a part of the DNA what's called silenced. It silences a part of the DNA so that it no longer codes for what it should. That's usually deleterious, or 
because a lot of the DNA actually is already neutral or silenced, isn't coding for anything. Most of those mutations already happen in a part of the DNA where there is no effect, but sometimes it does, and the organism ends up with a genomic defect. We have that. Um, we can't process vitamin. Uh, we, we don't produce vitamin C effectively because we have a defective gene, whereas other species don't, so we have to consume vitamin C. We can't make ascorbic acid. But sometimes, um, if I add another N over here, I get some novel thing, one, one, non-new. That sort of makes some sense. You can get a, a, a change in a trait that is not necessarily deleterious, but is simply a change, and that then natural selection can act upon. So um, the other new thing that has been uncovered by doing um, uh, with genomics, by actually sequencing the genome of organisms, is that it turns out that a lot of the changes in DNA over geologic time are the result of insertion of viral fragments into our DNA record. And typically viruses or RNA and the way that they do their dirty work is they drill into the cell as RNA and they co-opt the cell's mechanisms and they reverse transcribe the RNA, their RNA, into DNA in the cell nucleus and suddenly the virus has produced a little machine for making more viruses. But the organism can survive, and if this happens in the gametes and the sex cells, you can incorporate viral DNA into the genome. It's very rare, but over long periods of time, up to 40% of the human genome contains sequences that can be traced ultimately to these viruses. That doesn't mean that 40% of our genome is viral, but 40% of the sequence has been in some way affected by, uh, by viral um, uh, fragments, but a long time over the whole history of life. Okay, so are mutations random? One of the things that gives some people trouble is um, could an omnipotent God really um, uh, exist if things occur that are random in, in our universe? Well, the answer is mutations are random, as far as anyone can tell. There's no indication they're directed. But we tend to think of randomness as a lawless, chaotic process. What randomness usually, though, really means, particularly in physics, is that one event's not correlated with another event. So in radioactive decay, for example, you can predict the overall behavior of the system, how long it will take for half of a large number of um, unstable atoms to decay in a box. But you can't open the box and say, you know, let's take, uh, for example, um, uh, potassium-40, which, which uh, will undergo decay uh, part of the time to argon-40. You can't point to a particular potassium uh, atom and say, that one's going to decay next in five minutes, or that one's going to decay. The process is really random, but you can predict overall the behavior of the system um, on average with a large number of these particles. So really one should think in terms of randomness of contingency, a lack of correlation between uh, a process and what preceded it. And when I talk about Aquinas, you're going to see that he has something to say about contingent processes. So just remember that. Okay, very quickly, natural selection. Um, this is sort of the far side cartoon version of natural selection. 
Kids who like to play with baby bears don't go on to uh, grow up to adults. But from a mathematical point of view, natural selection has more to do with the interaction between an organism uh, and the landscape that it finds itself in. And that can be, landscape can be defined in any way. This is a sort of a mathematical definition where a particular um, organism with a given set of traits is able to migrate to um, um, a region uh, of maximum stability. In this case, uh, it's maximally fit for this environment. Other organisms can't. Um, this process we know occurs in bacteria with um, antibiotic resistance. We know it occurs in viruses with um, the production of new variants, for example, of COVID. But it also occurs in macroscopic organisms, and there are many examples of this um, among organisms, macroorganisms, um, that one can actually see on a human lifetime. Uh, for example, in, uh, in England, where trees began to be covered with soot after the beginning of the Industrial Age, uh, there was a prevalence, uh, where there was once a prevalence of white butterflies in a particular species. Those seen against black trees were easily caught by other insects. So all of a sudden, black butterflies became more prevalent, and so on. Um, the whole history of, the, um, of, uh, of life on Earth and the arising of new species is present in preserved remains, traces, impressions of living things. Some of these are just chemical traces. Some are very um, uh, spectacular, like fish, uh, ancient fish, reptilian fish. Um, this is a well-preserved skeleton of uh, an organism, which is not this organism, but um, this is my dog who wanted to have a role in this talk. I think this was an excellent effort on Emmett's part uh, to replicate this, this animal. So, um, But most fossils don't look quite that good. Nonetheless, over time, the fossil record has become uh, more and more complete when fossils were first Unearthed, um, the fossil record was very incomplete. It's getting a lot more complete now. And of course, it's complemented by the genomic record, which I will get to in a minute. Um, what's interesting about the evolution of life on Earth is, um, this didn't go off, there we go. What's interesting about the evolution of life on Earth is that macroscopic organisms don't show up in the fossil record until the last 10% of the Earth's history. So this is a figure showing um, the events of the evolution of, of, of life on the Earth coupled with geologic events. And um, life appears in the fossil record in microscopic unicellular form, single-celled primitive organisms, within the first 10% of the Earth's history. But complex life doesn't show up until um, complex multicellular animals till the last 10% of Earth's history. And why that is, is not entirely understood. Um, but it may have something to do with the environment. It may have something to do with the, um, um, the complexity of the, the genome, although um, macroscopic animals don't necessarily have longer genomes, longer uh, DNA uh, sequences in total than uh, some unicellular organisms. Um, I wanted to put this on a kind of a, a cosmic calendar since I advertise this as 
evolution from an astronomer's perspective. So this is a simple calendar and it's intended to represent the whole history of the universe. Um, the Big Bang occurs on January 1st at 12.01, uh, one minute after midnight. <clears throat> and the formation of the Earth as a planet we know very precisely, 4.55 billion years ago, occurs on September 3rd of this cosmic year. That's my sister's birthday. The first cells after this long period of time here appear only a few weeks after the formation of the Earth. Now what's happening all in here? Well, a lot is happening in the cosmos. The formation of galaxies uh, from uh, uh, gravitational collections of stars. Those first generation of stars don't have the elements in them to make rocky planets or to make life. They don't have silicon, they don't have carbon, iron, nitrogen, anything like that but they are making those elements in their nuclear furnaces in the deep interior and expelling them, the more massive stars at least are expelling them when they explode as supernovas. So sometime around May of the cosmic calendar, there's probably enough metals to begin making planets uh, around stars, but the Earth itself is around sort of a third generation star uh, the sun, uh, and uh, it forms on September 3rd. So here are the first cells, and life on Earth is unicellular until uh, sometime around early December uh, when um, multicellular plants and animals appear, and then uh, the first recognizable complex animals like trilobites uh, in the last couple of uh, December 17th, two weeks before the end of the year. Humans show up at five minutes before midnight, Recorded history is um, perhaps uh, on the order of uh, 30 seconds, uh, 20 seconds before midnight. So this is interesting from an astronomical perspective. It's also interesting that the evolution of our cosmos has proceeded for this long period of time before humans arose. That gives some people problems in terms of their religious beliefs, but it shouldn't because from a Thomistic point of view, this whole evolution is something that is kept in um, is kept in play, all of reality, by the Creator God, the uncaused cause. And so, rather than pointing to an event as being a result of a cosmic, of, of a, a divine intervention here, like the Big Bang, or the origin of life here, two weeks later, from a Thomistic point of view what the uncaused first cause is doing is making all of this happen all at once in a timeless sense. And I think once you think of things that way, the question of whether the universe is unexpectedly big or unexpectedly lengthy in time relative to the history of humans really becomes irrelevant. And you know, St. Thomas's view of what creation really means um, I think frees us from, from, uh, from that kind of what I would say artificial comparison of the question of the creator God with what we see of the, the evolution of the universe itself. God created the universe to evolve, to unfold according to physical laws, and those physical laws included the formation of the elements, the chemistry of the elements, biology, evolution, uh, the arising of humankind. So I'm going to go a little bit more quickly through this so I keep to my time. 
The fossil record gives one sense of, evo of how evolution transpired, but because it's possible to sequence the genome of organisms to determine that ordering of the letters, and that process now has become very, very rapid and efficient, it's possible to build a tree of life that shows the relationship between different organisms according to how different their genomic sequences are. The more different they are, the less related they are. And what's interesting is that even though we're way up here and bacteria are way over here, there's actually a relationship between bacteria, archaea, and our cells that suggests a way in which our eukaryotic cells came to be. And I'm not gonna talk about that because it's a digression. But rooted at the bottom here is some universal common ancestor from which everything arose. The genomic sequences are sufficiently common and related to each other that they root at a single point, which is some organism that's now extinct but from which everything else blossomed. Now, whether there were other organisms which are not part of the root of this tree or this truly was the first, no one knows, but all life that exists today roots on this phylogenetic tree into some last universal common ancestor. On the other end of the spectrum, um, macroscopic complex organisms like us are part of a family tree of primates uh, we are related uh, to the great apes with a reasonable amount of uh, uh, common uh, genomic uh, uh, sequences on the order of 91 to 95%. That's fairly impressive, um, but in terms of humans as a species, what's more impressive and more significant is that we share 99.9% .9 of our DNA with each other. So we are... Um, a very, very genetically closely related single species, even single subspecies, and the sort of uh, definition that, that a, a, a phylogenist would give this. Um, and that says that we all arose as fairly recently, 100,000, 200,000 years ago, perhaps. I'm gonna skip that for time. Um, there were inter intermediate species. Um, those, again, now are not just part of the fossil record, but part of the genomic record. The Nobel Prize in Biology was awarded uh, last week to the scientist who was able to first sequence the Neanderthal genome, so we know how we're related to our closest non-human relatives. Okay, so let me now get to um, questions about the compatibility of the church and evolution. Um, there's a history beginning in the 1950s of statements in mostly in encyclicals about evolution. Um, 1950 seems like it's very recent compared to when the origin of species came out in the 1860s, but as I'll point out, the unification of natural selection with the mechanism for inheritance wasn't really accepted until the 30s and the 40s. So the fact that the church um, uh, or the, the, um, uh, uh, these encyclicals issued by the Pope began to um, recognize evolution as a valid process, didn't begin until the middle of the 20th century, is actually not all that late. Benedict XVI gives the strongest statement, um, even stronger than the current Pope, uh, in which he says, um, and this is not in an encyclical, uh, it's in a different document, 
that there are so many scientific proofs in favor of evolution, which appears to be a reality we can see and which enriches our knowledge of life and being as such. He addresses, of course, these great philosophical questions. Where does everything come from? Um, what is man? Those are questions that can't be addressed by evolution. But as a physical process, this is a pretty definitive statement that um, it, it's, uh, it, it is well established and um, Benedict XVI accepts that. Um, there are many Catholic priests and uh, religious who've contributed to uh, evolution. I'll talk about one at the very end. I'll mention Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, who was an anthropologist, a real anthropologist, trained. Uh, and he was involved in the excavation of a very important um, intermediate species, Homo erectus. It was very long-lived. Um, he, he did the, these excavations in China. And um, he was um, uh, very prominent in that regard, as well as writing some very interesting books inspired by his scientific work. Um, he, uh, some of his theological ideas were uh, radical enough that the church uh, told him he could not publish them in his lifetime. They were published posthumously. But beginning actually in the 1960s, when Pope Benedict was uh, Joseph Ratzinger, he wrote a book in which he actually lauded Thierry de Chardin, and decades later, uh, Chardin became, you know, rather um, popular and to some extent has been uh, restored uh, in terms of his reputation within the church. Some are suggesting he could become the patron saint of the environment. He's probably not going to be given sainthood, but he certainly has become recognized now uh, much more than he was earlier. Um, living Catholic scientists working um, on evolution. Um, uh, Father Nicanor Ostriaco, a Dominican, uh, is an experimental biologist working on a number of problems. Uh, Ken Miller, uh, <clears throat> who's a lay Catholic, uh, has written one of the most popular introductory uh, textbooks on biology in the U.S., co-written, and has written a couple of popular books, um, basically taking uh, creationism and showing how it's an unreasonable alternative to evolution or what we call intelligent design instead of uh, creationism, uh, both practicing Catholics. Okay, um, so is Thomistic, some of St. Thomas's writings consistent with evolution? Again, St. Thomas lived in the 13th century, Darwin wrote in the 19th century, but there's some very interesting points that St. Thomas makes that are relevant to um, our understanding of evolution and its connection to the faith. One is the question of diversity and order. And in the Compendium Theologiae, which is that shorter work, um, which is a very interesting one to read, St. Thomas writes um, that the multiplicity and distinction existing among things were devised by the divine intellect and established so that the divine goodness might be represented by created things in various ways, and that different things might participate in the divine goodness in varying degree. All this was so that a certain beauty might shine forth from the very order existing among diverse things, a beauty which would direct the mind to the divine wisdom. So here, St. Thomas is associating diversity and a flourishing of many things with order in the cosmos which is a very interesting and insightful connection. And of course, 
what evolution has provided is an abundance of different species far greater than what can live on the earth at any given time, including today. And so one can think about that diversity, that process of the flowering and then extinction of species as being a part of that super diversity that in turn uh, represents the order of the divine wisdom. Now, with respect to contingency and randomness, um, this is uh, a quote from the Summa Theologiae, uh, uh, volume one, question 22, about contingency. And I'm gonna just read parts of it. Divine providence imposes necessity upon some things, not all. For to providence, it belongs to order things toward an end. Now, after the divine goodness, uh, the principal good in things themselves is the perfection of the universe, um, which would not be were not all grades of being found in things. Whence it pertains to divine providence to produce every grade of being. And thus it has prepared for some things necessary causes so that they happen of necessity, for others contingent causes that they may happen by contingency. And the Latin word that's used there does mean contingent or contingency according to the nature of their proximate causes. The effect of divine providence is not only that things should happen, but that they should happen either by necessity or contingency. So from St. Thomas's point of view, contingency and contingent things are perfectly fine. They're part of the divine plan, even though we ourselves see contingency as somehow being chaos or not directed. From St. Thomas's point of view, it is part of that divine direction. And I would refer you to a very interesting piece online um, by Fa uh, Father Thomas Davenport, it's a little old to his brother at the time, on the Thomistic Evolution site, in which he cites exactly the same um, quote from St. Thomas, and is actually a little bit more um, uh, precise about what, what this actually means. So I'm going to read a little bit from, um, from Father Thomas Davenport's uh, article here. So this is all about randomness in physics and what that randomness means in terms of uh, God's providence. Um, so having quoted St. Thomas, he says, God's providence is not a mathematical calculation, but an omniscience and omnipotent mastery of reality that brought the universe into existence and sustains it in existence at every moment in time. Just talked about that. The fact that a particular phenomenon has an element of randomness or contingency does not remove it from divine providence. God's creative power is such that the very powers that allow a creature to act and to cause, even to cause contingently and by chance, depends at every moment on God's sustaining power. Whatever happens in the world, whether radioactive decay, biological mutation, um, does not catch God by surprise. In fact, he gives his creatures their existence and their natures that allow them to radioactively decay or mutate. This type of knowledge seems to go against our very understanding of what knowledge and causation are, but that is because we are only familiar with how created causes know and work. God is not another part of nature. He is not even the greatest part of nature. Rather, he is nature's author and sustainer. He is the creator totally other to the created universe. Uh, Father Davenport got his undergraduate degree at Caltech. 
so which is where I went to grad school. He's, and he got his PhD in physics at Stanford. So I think that's a beautiful way to allow us to release ourselves from the concern that the randomness of evolution is somehow a, um, a, an argument against divine providence. It's not. All right, let me close, because I know I've gone over, um, with Darwin and Mendel. In 1859, Darwin published The Origin of the Species. He was dead on on natural selection. That was great, brilliant work. But his work was criticized because it didn't include a mechanism for the inheritance of traits consistent with observations. In fact, there wasn't any discussion of that. So in 1868, Darwin published a theory of inheritance of traits called pangenesis, which turned out to be completely wrong. In that idea, every organ in the body produces little particles called gemmules, which find their way to the gametes, the sex cells, and um, then all of this gets mixed together between uh, the male and female, and um, you produce an organism that has a mixture of those two. In the pangenesis theory, if the father has blue eyes and the mother has brown eyes, the baby will have sort of a mixture between the two. It didn't fit anything that was known about heredity at the time. Um, so these different um, characteristics would progressively dilute out in each generation. Five years before Darwin published his pangenesis theory, Gregor Mendel, the Augustinian monk, uh, obtained a copy of On the Origin of Species, said that he read it very carefully, he was fascinated. By that time, he was conducting his peapod experiments. And his peapod experiments led to the laws of heredity. Now, what are those laws? Well, very, very quickly, they work like this. Um, every organism has inherited um, a gene for a particular trait, one from the mother and one from the father. For many traits, for most traits, not all, but for many traits, there's a dominant gene and there's a recessive gene. In this case, the red star, let's think of it as a red plant, uh, red is the dominant gene, the dominant version of the trait, white is the recessive version. When the red and the white plants are crossed, anything that contains two reds or a red and a white will um, exhibit the red trait, it will be red. In the way that these are crossed, you can only get red plants in the second generation. But if you inherit two white genes, two of the recessive genes, then that plant will be white. So in the second generation, when you cross these plants in this little matrix here, three of the uh, products will be red and one of the products will be white. And that is what Mendel uh, worked out in his experiments. But what's been missed is that from that, he developed a theory of inheritance. And if you actually read his paper, the, the, the end, what seems like the end of the paper where he says discussion and conclusion is actually a whole discussion of this theory of inheritance. And what is that theory of inheritance? It is that for every characteristic in any plant, there's a pair of hereditary factors, which we now call genes. The two factors are inherited, one from each parent. The two factors separate during the formation of the gametes, and each gamete gets one factor or the other with equal probability. And that is very, very close to right. Essentially, it's right. There's some exceptions, but that is the right theory of inheritance. 
So it's in this paper on plan hybridization, but it's in the discussion section, and it was in German. And Mendel sent Darwin his paper, and Darwin didn't respond. So remember, this paper was written in 1866, a couple years before Darwin's pangenesis theory. Um, Darwin never responded. Uh, when Darwin died in 1882 and his office was cleaned out, that paper was apparently found unopened uh, in the mailing envelope. So Darwin had never read it. He never read the paper. So why is this important? It's important because Mendel's theory was generally just forgotten anyway in the excitement about um, natural selection. And it wasn't until 1900, after he was dead, that his experiments were repeated and he was rediscovered. Uh, his paper was translated into English at that time. And so um, it was only after 1900 that, that it was realized that this work had, had happened and there was this theory. And in fact, it even took a couple of decades longer so that really it wasn't until the 1930s, science historians will say, that the complete modern synthesis of evolutionary biology, the theory of inheritance and mutation, the theory of natural selection, were actually put together to make a complete picture. Now, if Darwin had opened that envelope and read the paper or gotten to translate it, would it have taken that long? Darwin was famous. So um, it has been speculated by some that had Mendel's theory been recognized by Darwin in his lifetime, that evolution might have been accepted sooner. And given the fact that a key piece of this, half of the whole puzzle, was actually worked out by a Catholic monk, maybe there would have been less animosity um, between some, some religious groups, some people, uh, uh, maybe not, because you know he was Catholic, and you know not all Protestants at the time like Catholics. But who knows? You get my point. Um, I see some some uh, signing back there. Um, could that antagonism have been forestalled? No idea. But it, bear in mind, Darwin only really got half the puzzle completed. The other half was uh, was Mendel's. So I'm going to stop there because I've run over time. Um, I hope this gives you a slightly different perspective on evolution, its relationship to church teachings, to Thomistic theology, and to the history of science. I'm happy to take questions. Uh, thank you, Professor Lunin, for that very much. Uh, we will now begin the 15-minute Q&A session. Please raise your hand, and I will call on you. Uh, Professor, do you think Neanderthals have a soul? Oh, that's a wonderful question. Um, I don't know the answer to that, but I will tell you a story. How's that? Um, when I was at the University of Arizona teaching uh, for 26 years, um, the Newman Center had a group, of, it was run by the Dominican friars. And then in the astronomy building, we had the Jesuit astronomers who um, run the Vatican Observatory and they had a telescope in Arizona. And they're all Jesuits. So there were Jesuit priests here and Dominicans over here. And so we were having um, a St. Albert the Great um, Forum on Science and Religion, uh, a talk in the Newman Center, and the Dominicans were having some student meeting. So up from the student meeting comes the, um, the young Dominican, and uh, coming out of our science and religion talk was um, a, a Vatican astronomer 
who um, was also quite well steeped in, 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 uh, in theology. And um, so the Dominican, uh, the young Dominican priest um, saw us. He said, oh, what was going on? We're having a talk about, um, I don't know, extraterrestrials, I think is what it was. And uh, so uh, he said, ah, it's very interesting. I wonder if, if, if extraterrestrials had a soul. And he was clearly trying to show his, his knowledge of the subject. He wasn't a scientist. And, uh, and Father Bill um, looked at him very, very seriously and uh, said to him, it's an interesting question, but even more interesting is, did Neanderthals have a soul? And that stopped the conversation, because no one knew the answer. Um, my own personal view is, uh, well, first of all, all things have souls, right? Plants have vegetative souls. Animals have um, uh, animal souls. And then uh, humans have, and let's see, animal souls, I think, are rational souls. I'm not going to guess right. Thank you. Um, but humans have a special soul. So um, did Neanderthal have an animal soul or a human soul? If I had to flip a coin, I'd say an animal soul, even though we all carry a bit of Neanderthal DNA in us. But that is only a wild guess on my part. You will never know because all Neanderthals are gone. And I sure hope we don't try to um, reconstruct any. Um, I don't think there's enough DNA to do that, but some people have talked about that. Other questions? Uh, uh, so my sister went to a like, Catholic high school, and uh, so I know when she was learning biology, she actually uh, was learning from Miller and Levine textbooks. Oh, yeah, great. Which, uh, so like, uh, like the little supplement that came from her high school was something like some kind of said, like, Church teaching like says you can teach evolution, but you can't teach that like humans directly descended from human animals. Like, is that really what the church says? Or? That, that is actually not what the church says. Um, I mean, I so this would have been a fairly recent, and this is your friend, so it's not like 30 or 40 years ago. Um, that is actually not church teaching. I'm not sure where they got that. Um, and uh, yeah, so I don't know. But that it was not in the book, right? Uh, no. Would, yeah. So I don't know where that came from, but that's not church teaching. The, the physical, the physical development of human beings is through the process of evolution. That is something that um, is accepted. Yeah, that's like physically more like. What I seem to gather from that like supplement was that like the church, like at least according to them, like didn't want that to be taught. So I, I missed the last part. Oh, that the church didn't want that part to be taught. Um, so I don't know. I haven't read the supplement, and I don't know who wrote the supplement. Um, but you know, so okay. So let me say this: as, as we all, those of us who are who are Catholic, um, I'm not excluding other people. I'm just saying, if you are Catholic. You, you know that the church is kind of a big, complex, messy place, right? And so, you know, there's an impression of a lot of top-down, but there's a lot of bottom-up, too. And so, you know, you, you read a lot of things that come from sort of the level of individual parochial schools, 
or even individual bishops in particular dioceses, which aren't necessarily um, the opinion or the, the magisterial teaching uh, from, from Rome. And so it's quite possible that that was there, despite what you would read, for example, in Pope Benedict's writings or uh, Pope Francis's writings in the cyclicals. So, you know, I would have to guess that that would have come from someone's particular view or opinion. What I would really recommend is Googling on a site called Thomistic Evolution. That has been put together by a number of um, Dominican uh, and lay scientists. Uh, there are actually a couple of books that come out of it, but it's a great resource in terms of these teachings. And there's even a section, uh, Disputations, where um, there are some, and in particular there's one Dominican friar who uh, has written a lot arguing uh, that evolution is not consistent with Thomistic teachings, for example, and therefore, he argues, can't be right. Um, he's in the minority, but all of these arguments back and forth are exposed on that site. Um, this particular article I pulled off of that site, and I would strongly recommend, it's a great resource. Um, <clears throat> Father Nick Norostriaco, who's an experimental biologist, has done a lot of the writings. Um, there are a number of others who are physicists um, and biologists who are involved. Um, so I would go to that site. And I would recommend it to your friends too. And I'll Google on it and right here is an empirical uh, test of whether it actually exists while I'm answering the next question. So thank you for your talk, very interesting. So I wonder, maybe this is a little bit off topic, but related to evolution. Thing. Have you heard about the argument against naturalism of Alvin Platinga? So I've heard of Alvin Platinga, but I'm not sure I know what the argument against natural. Well, so is what? So let it's me. It's not against evolution. It's against no. naturalism. Okay, so natural. Right. So naturalism is a different topic. Exactly. But yeah. Okay. Yeah. So go ahead. So are you, have you heard of it or? I've heard of naturalism. I'm not sure I've heard of Platinga's arguments okay, against right, right. I've so read some I'm going to paraphrase. You know, yeah, so go it's, ahead. Yeah. It's something like this. Yeah. So if naturalism is true, and we are basically the product of matter, randomness, of a bunch of time, mm -hmm. right? And our brains, in principle, right, they came up of this mm -hmm. random process. Mm -hmm then there's no reason to think that our brain are aimed to find or, or to find truth. Mm -hmm. Right. Because as it is, as an engineer, for example, the first thing that you are taught in design, when you design something is, you know, to aim at something, right? right. And depending on the goal, then you will design the transistor or the resistor, whatever, to achieve that goal. Right. But if, if evolution doesn't aim at anything, just survival, Survival doesn't doesn't depend on truth. Right. You, you can so yes. that's the argument. I the argument, yeah. So I, I think it's not only Platinga, um, Stephen Barr uh, has also I mean he may have been the I don't think Platinga was the first, but I have heard that argument. And so um, yeah, I think it's a good argument. There it, there's certain delicate logic that's required to make it convincing um, because one can argue that 
some of what we do uh, in terms of creating things might come about uh, because of, of, of how our behaviors arose as um, you know, hunter-gatherers having to make decisions about um, what is dangerous and what is not dangerous and so forth. But actually, once you probe fairly deeply, it's a pretty limited set of decisions that have to be made. And it doesn't seem to have anything to do with um, our desire for art or beauty or love or symmetry in design or understanding uh, how far away a galaxy is or conceptualizing a model for the expansion of the universe. And so, um, and, and I know this goes back before Plotinga because Georges Lemaitre, now that I think about it, argued that as well, and that was in the 1920s. So, um, I, I mean, one can spend years arguing about naturalism or materialism or however you want to put it, that, you know, there is absolutely nothing except the material universe, and that is it. And our brains are basically, you know, wet computers. They're, they're neat in some way. Um, I know plenty of people who are not Catholics who think that that idea is, oh, it doesn't make sense either. It's also incoherent. Um, so I would agree with you. All right. Uh, gentleman over there. Uh, yeah. Um, I'm sorry if this is a little out of uh, purview. Um, well, it might uh, be a question I can actually answer in that case. <laughs> so. uh, I'm curious if um, you think that. A, Thomistic metaphysic, um, sort of the assumptions that Thomism might bring to scientific, the, the study of science, or scientific inquiry, is significant enough that it might um, yield different results or a different approach in some elements here of um, the study of biology. And if the answer is no, uh, then in what way? Does it, would it matter? Okay, sure. So um, I am a, a very chauvinistic about science. I yep. think science works extremely well. It doesn't mean it gets everything right all the time. In fact, it's always evolving. You know, you go yep. back to some paper in the journals that I read, like Astrophysical Journal or Icarus, and you pick a random article. You know, it, it will have been superseded already mm -hmm. by something else. but. But science is a process for learning about the material world, and we are material creatures. I mean, that is, you know, that is the case. We are creatures. Um, it is the most successful uh, approach that the human intellect has ever thought of. Where I see Thomistic metaphysics uh, interacting with science is that science, and particularly actually in in our field bumps up against metaphysics at some point. You know, it bumps up against it at the ultimate levels of reality, uh, the, the depths of time. Uh, and so trying to understand how to sort of gracefully interface at that, at that boundary, I think St. Thomas has a lot to tell us about that. And I also think that St. Thomas has a lot to tell us about, um, has a lot to tell us that many of the things that um, people today argue are a product of science and militate against the existence of God actually don't do that because they're 
coherent with his theology and philosophy. One example of which I gave was the question of, of randomness, essentially. So those are, those are, and you know, I have to put a caveat on that, which is you're talking to someone who spends almost all his time doing planetary science and astronomy, yeah. and so the, the theological side of my brain is highly shrunken, and you know, isn't gonna grow at my age. So, um, but that's how I see it, at least. If I could ask one follow-up Yeah, question. please do. Uh, just something you mentioned. Uh, I'm curious, do you think that uh, the epistemic process of science is one that's necessarily progressive, or do you think that uh, it might have to, it might require backtracking in terms of No, I, I mean, there's often backtracking. I, actually, I think there, are, there, there potentially are problems um, uh, which, um, in, in which, you know, science may be going up uh, the wrong alley okay. in some cases, and then, you know, there is some kind of big overturn or overhaul. Uh, and there was, you know, Thomas Kuhn in the 1960s wrote The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, in which he argued that was always the way that science worked, and that was kind of overkill. Yeah. In fact, I took a course from one of his PhD students here at Rochester, Darwin's Revolution, a guy named Ted Brown, um, who had been one of his students. But I think there are times when, yes, things go in a particular direction, and, and it's just, it's wrong, and there's, there's a big overturn in some kind. Okay. Yeah. All right, I think we can take one more question. Um, uh, I guess, you sir, are you Yeah. Oh, I was wondering, how long do you think it'll take for these Thomistic uh, beliefs about like evolution to be adopted into like the the Catholic faith, or um, and like if there's a certain event that you might think would kind of initiate this? I missed the first part. Initiate the introduction of. Or like, how long do you think it might take for these beliefs about um, evolution and um, oh, Thomistic oh, philosophy to be adopted? Oh, I see. And one might initiate that. Okay, so let me let me maybe generalize it. I, I think in this country in particular, um, on average, we don't do a really good job of science education, uh, and so a lot of you know a lot of people, more people than should be the case, have a poor understanding of science. Not only how science is done, but the limitations of science as well. Um, that is again. You know, science tells us things about the material world that we live in. It doesn't tell us about, you know, spirit, love, beauty, the divine, and so forth. Um, the more you understand about science, I think the more you understand what those boundaries are. So it isn't just a Catholic issue. I think it's a, it's an American issue. And, and I think it will happen when we put more emphasis on science education and maybe teach science in a more effective way in our schools. I know I'm... I'm throwing out things that are not easy to solve, but I think that's that's actually where that would happen. And then from the Catholic point of view, um, it would be really good if there was actual faith formation in most parishes where people didn't just go to mass on Sunday and then split, where they actually sat down and you know, talked about these issues in a serious way, and I know there I'm demanding something else, like people give up half their Sunday afternoon as well. But, I mean, without that, the faith becomes um, a rote process, and, um, and 
know, how, I mean, how many Catholics read encyclicals? So, um, so both of those are really high bars to jump over, I realize, but I think that's what's needed. All right, uh, okay. thank, thank, thank you all for the questions, and right. thanks again to Dr. Looney so, for a great event. If you have not already done so, please sign in uh, at the, in the back. Also be sure to come to the next and final Thomistic Institute lecture this semester. Uh, Dr. James Madden from Benedictine College will deliver a lecture titled, Does Neuroscience Disprove Free Will? It will be held on Thursday, November 10th at 5.30 p.m. in Dewey 2162 Todd Auditorium. Thank you all for coming today and have an excellent fall break. Thanks.